Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Hello and welcome to our final episode of the Summit for Wellness podcast for 2018. We have been reflecting back on all the different podcast episodes we have done this year, and we have had such a wide variety of episodes, ranging from the microbiome to women's health to Alzheimer's and more. So as we are reflecting back on the episodes, we decided to provide you with the top five episodes that we have from 2018. We chose these episodes based off of the number of downloads they have received and by how much interaction all of you have had with these episodes. So let's start diving into the top five episodes from 2018. Number five. Sitting in the number five spot is our episode number 52 with Katie Garces, where we talked all about intuitive eating. Katie talks a lot about how to listen to your body to understand what your body needs in the form of food and nutrients instead of just following specific diets. There is a reason why so many diets out there are extremely hard to follow and people can't stick with it forever. And it's because people are trying to force uh, protocol into their bodies, even though their bodies might not need that protocol and it needs something else. So she does a great job about talking all about how to listen to your body and listen to what it needs and how to not feel guilty about the different things you do eat. So here's a little clip from episode 52. So let's dive into it the intuitive eating a little bit more. Can you talk about what it is and what were the initial steps that you took to start following this intuitive eating uh, process? Sure. So intuitive eating is really, like I said, it's very natural for us. It's the way we were sort of wired to to eat and live. Um, an intuitive eater, I like to say, is somebody who who makes their food choices without guilt, without dilemmas, who honors their hunger, who respects their fullness and who actually seeks and enjoys pleasure from eating. So a lot of us have made eating this really stressful thing, you know, from a yes, no list to weighing our food to, um, you know, it's, it's stressful. It, it has come so far from, you know, enjoying pleasure and you know, seeking those things from food. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I like to call an intuitive eater. If you think about it, animals intuitively eat, Kids, for the most part, intuitively eat. And I think we've just been so inundated with, um, you know, news articles and books and podcasts and blogs. And, and, and I do want to say there's a time and a place for all of that stuff. And it's super important that we educate ourselves to how to be healthy and how to eat and live healthily. It's just when we get to that place of almost information overload to the point that we don't even know how to listen to what our body's asking for that we get into little trouble. So I like to say there's, you know, a time and a place for information and fact finding and seeking expert opinions. And then there's a time and place for what I like to call just body wisdom for just getting back into our body, listening to what is going on, what our body's asking for. Is it asking for rest? Is it asking for more carbs? Is it asking for more fat? Whatever that may be, despite what 
your latest, you know, diet framework says you should be doing, or despite what your best friend is doing and she managed to lose 20 pounds, or despite what your coach is doing, you know? So it's really trying to get back in touch with what your body's asking for, honoring that, not feeling guilty about it, and and kind of going from there. And I think we don't give our bodies the, I don't know, almost sometimes the appreciation that they are dynamic, changing organisms, right? We are different day to day. For women, we're very different week to week with our hormones. If you think about different times in our life from, you know, being a even like an infant to a toddler to a teenager to a pregnant person or a training athlete, the needs of our bodies are drastically different during those times. And so, like I said, if something worked for you at one point, great. But if it stops working for you, acknowledge that, recognize that, don't force it. Or if you find a, you know, a framework that you love, but there's one piece that just doesn't seem to jive with your body, but you're forcing yourself to do it just so you can be like on point with the diet, that, that's just silly. You know, you got to really say, okay, what's working for my body? How do I want to feel? Is this serving me? Is this getting me to the way I want to feel? And if not, how can I change it? There's no diet police out there that's going to say, hey, you know, you're not doing this component of, you know, this diet, so you better, you know, so you fail. It's really about what can I, how can I live, eat, move, sleep, all of those things to feel the way I want to feel. So does that, does that answer that? I kind of went, kind of went tangential. Yeah. And I, I like one of the things that you mentioned there with the dynamic changing organisms, because mm -hmm. like you said, so many people, they go onto a diet and it's like beating a hammer against your head, even though you don't feel good, you want to stick to that diet and they just keep going with it. But every day is different, especially for women with their hormonal cycles. Every single day, their body needs some something different, different nutrients, different uh, macronutrients, whatever it is, to be able to handle those hormonal changes. So I love that you mentioned the dynamic changing organisms there. Right. So my question is, because we are so dynamic why do you think people get so caught up in following a specific diet or following a plan or following the eat this not that type of mindset instead of trying to learn how their body is supposed to feel and eat right i think for some people for a lot of people and this is totally normal and natural when we are confused or overwhelmed with information or unhappy with the state of our you know, body or our health, of course, we're gonna latch on to something hard and fast, black and white that says, do this and you'll get this result, right? I mean, that's, we, we, we latch onto that when we're feeling, when we're coming from a place of uncertainty or unhappiness. So, and I, like I said, it's okay to do that to some extent, um, but there's not one person who can do one diet plan 100% perfectly 100% of the time. Um, we're all going to respond differently. And it's, I feel like when people quote fail, um, they tend to like just go off the rails, right? They're like, oh, I screwed up. I might as well just eat everything bad because I had one, you know, I, I went off plan for one meal. And so I'm just going to, I'm totally off plan, right? And then the pendulum swings. Um, we feel worse about ourselves. We feel guilty. Um, and sometimes we even over restrict more, we'll restrict more calories or we'll exercise more. And that's really why diets are basically proven not to work. It's that classic diet cycle of restriction leads to breaking the rules or overeating, more guilt and shame, more overcompensation and restriction. And so that's why it's just that cycle. 
Um, but I feel like, especially in our society, it's what, it's what everyone does. And everyone is always looking for that next magic pill, that next magic fix. And so that's kind of why I call it the great unknown or the wild, wild west. When we step outside of those confines, it's scary. And even people are like, oh, you don't, you don't follow paleo or you don't follow veget. You know, everyone has, it's almost like that's what we, how we define ourselves or identify ourselves. A lot of us, right? Like, oh, I'm a so-and-so or... And so it's it's kind of this weird place where we have to just make it our make it our own thing and appreciate that our body is going to need different things at different times and that that's okay. As you can see, Katie does a fantastic job about talking about the struggles of figuring out what it is that you should be eating and teaching how to start listening to your body to figure out what your body actually needs. So you can definitely find out more about what she has to offer if you go to episode 52, which is at summitforwellness.com slash 52. Number four. Coming in at the number four spot is episode 40 with Kelly McCann, where we talk all about mold and how to treat mold toxicity. Now, this is a topic that's really dear to my heart because this is what was at the root cause of my big health crisis, which if you listen to my latest episode on the Everyday Wellness podcast, uh, we talked about um, what I went through and my wife went through with mold exposure and how it impacted our health. But in this episode with Kelly, we talk a lot about what to do in the instance that you have uh, mold within your household, what to do about getting rid of the different items that can mold really easily, and the different ways that you can start treating your own health symptoms when you have been exposed to mold. So listen to this clip from episode 40. So it's not necessarily the mold that's affecting the body. It's more of these mycotoxins that might be in the air or being released by mold or fungus that's within the body. It can be both of those things. In fact, when you have a situation where there's water damage in a building, not only are there molds there and mold toxins produced by the molds, but it's really a toxic soup of organisms. There are fragments, there are bacteria, there are viruses, there are protozoa, there's all sorts of organisms that are in those moldy environments and any one of these things can cause health problems. Um, the molds also produce what are called volatile organic compounds or VOCs, which is the smell. So when you smell that musty smell, those are microbial VOCs and those in, in and of themselves have health impacts. They can cause headaches and fatigue and respiratory issues, neurological things. So it's the molds, the mycotoxins, the microbial VOCs, and that whole toxic soup in the water-damaged environment. And you named off a few of those symptoms, but can you go into some more symptoms that mold toxicity can express? Sure. So some people might just have respiratory issues or fatigue, but the list of symptoms is very, very long, actually, of all the things that can show up when people have mold exposure. People can have headaches, they can develop chemical sensitivities, they can have endocrine problems, adrenal problems, um, they can 
have difficulty oxygenating their lungs. They can have a lot of memory problems, a lot of neurological problems. They can de develop chronic pain. They can de develop abdominal issues or gastrointestinal issues. For example, when I was living in my moldy building, all of a sudden I was having a lot of trouble eating a variety of different foods. So I couldn't eat gluten or dairy. I developed um, sensitivities to almonds, rice, peas, eggs, strawberries, tomatoes, peppers, oranges. The list became incredibly long because the mold and the mycotoxins were damaging the intestinal lining. So any, any system in the body can be impacted by these mold and mycotoxin exposures. Are they also affecting the microbiome as well that's living inside of the guts? Yes, it's quite possible. There's some early literature to support the idea that it is changing the bacterial flora, the microbiome, and the what we call the mycobiome. So microbiome is the bacteria in the gastrointestinal system. And then we're just starting to learn that there's actually a fungal mycobiome, M-Y-C-O, in the GI tract as well. It's a very small percentage of, of the organisms that are in the gastrointestinal system, but those two are being impacted by these exposures. So do we typically find this in places that have water damage or high humidity or a lot of moisture? Yes. Any number of um, External environments can impact the, the potential for water damage. So in the Northwest, where it rains a lot, where you are, Brian, that's a, a potential uh, issue if the buildings um, are not properly constructed. And even in Southern California, where we don't get a lot of rain, I've actually found because the environment doesn't require um, certain kinds of building standards. So for example, we don't have a snow load here in Southern California, so you don't have to build a roof such that it can hold those loads of snow. I, I think that um, the construction is not optimal, and so there's potential for water damage in a lot of places. Um, we also have sprinkler systems that might hit the house on a regular basis and not really even think about the fact that every time that sprinkler system and the water hits the house, that water can seep under the house and set up a situation where mold can grow. Mold toxicity and exposure is a lot more common than what we might think. And there has been a lot of documented cases of uh, people getting sick from toxic homes that have been growing mold for a long time. And it could be your house, it could be your work environment, and there's also been a lot of cases at schools too. So it is a big health crisis that's out there that's becoming more mainstream, and a lot more people are talking about it. So we even created a guide to walk people through what to do if they are exposed to mold. So if you go to summitforwellness.com slash mold, you can get that guide right there. If you want to listen to this episode with Kelly, then go to episode 40, which is at summitforwellness.com slash 40. Number three. 
Coming in at the number three spot of the top five podcasts of 2018 is Kiran Krishnan, who is a microbiologist who is doing a ton of research in the microbiome. And I have to say, this is probably one of my favorite podcast episodes from 2018 because he just drops value bombs left and right. He is doing so much good work out there in the microbiome, which, as we're starting to learn, is kind of the the epicenter of a lot of health issues and ways to um, initiate healing in the human body. So in this episode, we dive deep into the microbiome. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, probiotics and different probiotic strains and also the different probiotics that you can find out on the shelves in uh, supermarkets or health food stores and whether those uh, probiotics actually work or not. So listen to this little snippet of uh, episode 57 with Kieran and also understand that this is just a tiny little snippet of all the value bombs that he was dropping in that episode. So you mentioned that right now we understand around 10% of the microbiome, but with all the information that we're receiving and all the research that people like you are doing on the microbiome, we're able to start to create patterns and discover what an unbalanced or an out-of-balance microbiome might look like. So can you talk about what happens to the body when the microbiome is out of balance? Yeah, so uh, a couple of the general things. One is, and one way of being out of balance is to having really low diversity. Uh, I had mentioned that earlier that in the gut, having high diversity is really important. When you have low diversity, what you tend to have is a, is a significant overgrowth of certain genres of bacteria. Now, although those bacteria do play a role in the system, when they are overgrown, they prevent the uh, important functionality of other groups of bacteria. So one of the things that, that occurs, for example, is um, a, a good example of that is, is every bacteria in your gut can kind of be characterized as a proteolytic bacteria or a sacrolytic bacteria. So sacrolytic bacteria will take incoming carbohydrates and convert them to short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, propionate, and acetate. Proteolytic bacteria will take them in and, and convert them to other peptides, uh, but in the process also produce gas and other things. Now, the function of proteolytic bacteria is still important, but if, you're, if you have a dysbiotic uh, flora and you have too much proteolytic bacteria and not enough short-chain fatty acid production, it'll screw up your metabolism, it'll increase inflammation, it will not allow your body to utilize um, helpful incoming nutrients. It will actually screw up gut-brain signaling. Um, it will screw up your um, body's ability to access fat for energy, for example. Um, and the healing process of your intestinal lining, the enterocytes that make up your intestinal lining, also become disrupted because they are so dependent on the short-chain fatty acids. So that's a... Um, and, and low levels of short-chain fatty acids can then be attributed to higher risk for metabolic syndrome, for diabetes, for obesity, uh, for colitis, Crohn's, other inflammatory bowel disease, and so on. So all of those risks come strictly from having too much proteolytic bacteria, which have a role in the microbiome, and not enough sacrolytic bacteria, right? So it's a simple imbalance, a simple shift. And, and if you shift it the other way, just by 3 4 5%, then all of those major risks can go away. And that's how profound 
the maintenance of the ecology within the microbiome is. So, can you give some examples of what would cause the microbiome to be out of balance, whether it's environmental or,、um, you know, medication that we might be on, or something along those lines? Yeah, there's there's a lot actually, and I always tell people, you know, the fact that we are essentially a walking, talking rainforest. We we are highly dependent on a vast diversity of microorganisms to live in and on us in order to support our our health and well-being.、Um, having、uh, evolved this way, we have done then taken ourselves and put ourselves in a very Hazardous、uh, environment to these microbes, right? Everything around us is an antimicrobial.、Um, if you look at our water, our drinking water has chlorine and fluoride in it. Those are antimicrobials. If you look at、uh, most processed foods, have preservatives in them that are antimicrobials. If you look at, of course, antibiotic use, even the CDC estimates that more than fifty percent of antibiotic prescriptions are unnecessary, and those are. Devastating to the ecology of of the microbes within the system.、Uh, we also know that all of the pesticides and herbicides that are used on all of the food we eat,、uh, for example, glyphosate, the the active ingredient in Roundup, is is a really strong antimicrobial.、Um, you know, and so everything around its personal care products all contain strong chemicals that are antimicrobials. I just saw a research paper、uh, yesterday that was published that showed that Splenda. The sweetener actually has strong、um, antimicrobial effects, where it screws up the ecology in the gut. So basically, everything that we've surrounded ourselves with causes some degree of disruption in our ecology.、Um, and and to give you, you know, to walk through a process, let's say you get a severe cold or flu,、um, you go into the doctor in urgent care center. What a lot of doctors in urgent care centers tell me is that people come in, they're feeling. You know, totally crappy.、Um, they're sick. They've got a high fever. They want something. They want a drug. They want a prescription because they want to get back to work the next day or the following day. And so doctors actually feel pressure to give them an antibiotic prescription, even though they don't need it, and even though the antibiotic can't help. Right, so they so you go to an urgent care center, you get a cor,、uh, a prescription for an antibiotic,、um, and you leave, and then you start taking the antibiotic. The first dose of the antibiotic will knock down your microbiome by ninety nine point nine percent. Wow! And right, it's a it's a it's a evaporation of the functional bacteria in the gut. Now, what's good about bacteria is they will bounce back and they'll come back again. The problem is the ones that come back faster. Tend to be the more problematic bacteria because one of the, one of the things that occurs when you wipe down the bacteria with a single dose of antibiotic, you also increase the pH of the of the gut environment because most of those good bacteria produce acid and keep the pH low in the gut because low pH suppresses the growth of unfavorable organisms. So you wipe down the the bacteria, the pH goes up. And then on the return of the microbes, the bacteria that do better at a higher pH come back faster. And also the other thing that does great in the presence of antibiotic are fungus. So you get more fungus coming back. Then you take the second dose of antibiotics. Everything gets wiped down again. And then on the return, more of the unfavorable bacteria grow, more of the fungus grow. So a single course of that unnecessary antibiotic can perturb your microbiome for up to two years. Studies have shown. Right, so just that alone, 
and then you're drinking water from the tap. There's chlorine going into your system. Um, you know, you might be eating processed food, even though it says organic, will have some herbicide and pesticide on it. Um, all of those things compound together to absolutely destroy our ecology. So long story short, the microbiome is extremely important for our health. So if you want to learn more about the microbiome, then check out this episode at summitforwellness.com slash 57. We also did a couple more episodes all about the microbiome where we talked about the microbiome of the eye and then also um, throughout the uh, gastrointestinal tract too. Uh, we had Ken Brown on as well to talk about that. So uh, this episode, episode 57, you can hear one more time at summitforwellness.com slash 57. Number two. Coming in at number two of the top five podcast episodes from 2018 is episode 51 with Cynthia Thurlow, where she talks about how to help women to regulate their hormones and to also start to uh, lose the weight that they've been holding on to. And a lot of that comes down to uh, certain endocrine function and the way that uh, they get, they start to dysfunction by our lifestyles. So she does a phenomenal job of talking about how this uh, endocrine system works within the body and what women can do to try to reduce the overload on the endocrine system so that it can start to uh, regulate the body properly. So here is a little snippet from episode 51. Um, and it wasn't until, gosh, it was three years ago. So it was 2015 and we bought a house and sold a house. Um, I was finishing up the program. You know, my kids were still, gosh, they were, you know, rising, you know, they were in second and, and kindergarten, so really young. Um, so still pretty demanding uh, in terms of time. And I just started getting physically very tired. Um, and I knew something was wrong because I'm a very kind of energetic person. I exercise a lot. I've always been very fit. And, you know, I, I recall I got out of bed one day after we moved into our new house and I was like, God, I had no energy. I knew something was wrong. Uh, I had an idea of what was wrong, but I didn't want, really want to admit it to myself. And so um, I worked with my mentor uh, at the time and, and kind of did a deep dive into what was going on with me hormonally. And it was very humbling. And it became very apparent to me that I wasn't going to get better. I wasn't going to be able to fix what was wrong until I reduced my stress substantially. And that's a hard thing to wrap your head around because let's be honest, um, my background's in ER medicine and cardiology. I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. I like sick people. I like the rigor of critically sick people. Uh, and to acknowledge that um, I needed to kind of get my, I needed to kind of get my, um, you know, my stimulation in different ways, you know, intellectually was it was really hard to wrap my head around. But a very good friend of mine who is probably my favorite physician I've ever worked with looked at me, who he has a very deep faith, and he said, Cynthia, when you let go of your ego, the decision will be easy. And I, I mean, I still to this day, it gets tears in my eyes when I think about it. But he said that to me, and it, it just, it everything became clear. What's most important? Because if I'm hanging on to this job because of my ego, because of course my parents thought I was crazy, you know, why would you, you know, you're, you went to a very, very good university, um, you've got this really, really good job. Why? How could you step away from that? I mean, because my parents had big egos. That's why they kind of struggle with that. Um, but, you know, it, 
really recognizing that I wasn't going to be the kind of parent that my children deserve, the kind of wife that my husband deserved to have, to be the kind of person who could really give of themselves to others um, meant that I had to take a step back. And so that decision, once I made it, was an easy one, but getting to that point was very hard. And so um, that became the, the next rabbit hole of, you know, diving into fixing, healing myself. And then when I was able to heal myself, the irony is that out of that came uh, the development of a niche so I can actually help women when they're going through the same health issues because I've been there. You know, I always tell people it's a whole lot easier when you haven't been through it yourself. When you've been there and someone says to you, I'm so tired, I can't function. You know, I've gained weight and I've never had a problem with my weight or I have crazy food cravings and I've never had this before. What does this mean? I get it because I've been there and I come back like now I'm on the other side. So I can, you know, I can say enthusiastically that it makes such a huge difference when you've got someone that can kind of guide you and help you make sense of what may not be what, what may not be as clear to other um, healthcare providers of what's going on. And that's such a good niche to go into, too, because there's mm -hmm. so many women out there that are suffering from these hormonal issues and mm -hmm. weight gain issues and insomnia and food cravings and all sorts of stuff. So why is it that there's so many women that suffer from these different issues? I mean, I think it goes back to, you know, there's so many things. I mean, if you think about the fact that if our endocrine system is really um, controlled ultimately by the HPA axis, so hypothalamus pituitary axis. So, you know, our brain, if we aren't taking care of our brain, our brain's going to make sure it lets us know that we need to take care of ourselves. And so I think part of the problem is we're in a very overstimulated world. We feel compelled to be connected to technology. I know we were touching base on, about that specifically right before we got on our call. But I think the, the, the influences of what goes on in the environment, um, you know, feeling like we have to be connected to technology 24-7, the amount of stress we experience, people who don't prioritize sleep, um, not eating the right foods for our bodies. And this is not a, this is not a, a criticism. It's just that we are in a society where we believe that you know, meals aren't meant to be savored, they're meant to be rushed, and we should be eating in our cars or eating at our kids' game or eating on the go um, and not, you know, really putting our bodies into the right mindset to actually consume, let alone digest food. I think that it really stems from our um, lifestyle choices. And so I think when you're in your 20s and 30s, your body can better handle and weather us not taking care of ourselves. However, as we get older, um, and I have clients in their 20s and 30s, so by no estimation is this just a, an issue of people over the age of 40. But I think as we get older, our bodies are less capable of making the adjustments that need to happen in order to ensure that we can weather those kinds of stressors. I'll give you an example. I live in Northern Virginia, and interestingly enough, there are a lot of data centers in our area, and I'm starting to notice a lot of women who are having trouble sleeping because obviously the exposure to radiation. And I know that the Board of Supervisors in our, in our area probably think it's wonderful because it helps with the tax base, but by the same token, you start to wonder how all of these things influence the endocrine system, our brains, our ability to de-stress, um, you know, that whole ancestral living that, you know, one of our colleagues, Brian Hoyer, really talks about, 
um, has really resonated with me deeply. So to you know, kind of touch base on your, your original question, I suspect a lot of the reasons why we're starting to see these health issues is just because of the way that we live our lives. This, these are not issues that people had 100 years ago. When you think about it, it really is a you know, modern day epidemic. And I think many, many people are so disconnected from their bodies that they don't register these kinds of changes uh, until it's too late or until they're at a point where they're really sick. Cynthia is a practitioner that I deeply respect, and I absolutely love just how authentic she is. So if you don't follow her, then make sure you do, because she definitely walks you through different uh, struggles within daily life that can help you make decisions uh, for your health during uh, different times, such as when you're on vacation or when New Year's is coming up and you want to decide whether you want to drink a lot of alcohol or kind of back off a little bit. Uh, she definitely helps you to walk through those different decisions and uh, figure out the best ways that you can still enjoy life, but also help to uh, regulate your ho- hormones as best you can. So to listen to this episode, then head on over to summitforwellness.com slash 51. Number one. Okay, we have reached the number one spot for the top five podcasts from 2018. And this episode goes all the way back to the very beginning of the year, episode 27, uh, which is talking about what to do with Alzheimer's and how the ketogenic diet can help to improve brain function, especially those with uh, who are suffering from Alzheimer's. And so our guest, Amy Berger, wrote a book all about Alzheimer's and how the ketogenic diet can impact uh, the way that people's brains function. And so in this little snippet, you'll hear a little bit about what glucose or sugar does to the brain. And then later in the episode, we talk a lot about how to um, reduce the amount of overload that the glucose is putting on the brain and how uh, ketones can help the brain to function better and provide a a more sustainable uh, fuel source for the brain to function. So since you mentioned uh, insulin and glucose, can you talk about how that would impact the development of Alzheimer's? Yeah, so Alzheimer's disease is... I mentioned earlier, they actually refer to it as type 3 diabetes, diabetes of the brain, or brain insulin resistance. All three of those phrases can be found in the medical journals and in the scientific papers on this illness. And so right away, if we know nothing else about Alzheimer's, we know that there's at least some kind of connection with glucose and or insulin. And the reason they call it type 3 diabetes is so... I like to say that Alzheimer's disease is a metabolic problem. And by metabolic, I mean it has to do with the way the brain gets energy. And um, the major crisis going wrong in an Alzheimer's brain is that the neurons in affected regions of the brain have lost the ability to get energy from glucose. So they're basically starving to death. I mean, I'm, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but the, the gist of it is that these cells wither and shrivel up and they atrophy because they are losing energy. They're essentially starving. And um, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, nobody wakes up all of a sudden with severe Alzheimer's disease. This, this is happening to people in their 50s and 60s, and it gets worse and worse over time. You know, this, this no longer strikes exclusively people in their 80s and 90s. Like we, it used, we used to call it senile dementia, senile meaning older. But this is happening to people now, not only in midlife, but they can actually measure this decrease 
in the brain's metabolism of glucose in people as young as their 30s and 40s. So that's when this starts. Except when somebody is that young, they're not showing any signs and symptoms. They're still totally normal. They don't have any brain fog. There's no quote unquote senior moments. They're doing fine. But over time, as this problem gets worse and worse, eventually you reach a tipping point where the brain is no longer able to compensate. That's when you start showing the signs and symptoms. That's when you start becoming forgetful, misplacing things. But when those signs and symptoms appear, it's pretty late in the game. The disease process has already been going on for years. So um, it's, 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 when you think of it being an energy crisis in the brain, you know, when you're, when you're tired, when you just don't get enough sleep, you get clumsy, right? You make mistakes you don't normally make. You get slow and sluggish. Well, what do we think happens to our brain when the brain doesn't get enough energy? Same thing. It gets slow. It makes mistakes it doesn't normally make. It gets klutzy. And the brain is a, an extremely energy-hungry organ. I mean, the brain uses between 20 and 25% of all the, the glucose and all the oxygen in your body. So any sort of interruption in the fuel supply to the brain, and Alzheimer's is basically a, a fuel shortage in the brain, anything that causes that is going to have you know, very bad implications for, for cognitive function, which is exactly what we see in Alzheimer's. So some people might be hearing that it's, it's an issue with getting glucose into the brain cells. And with our diet that most of us eat now, the standard American diet that's full of sugar and carbohydrates, why wouldn't we be getting enough glucose into the cells in order to function properly? That is a really good question. And you're like one of the only people that's ever asked it in that way. And it's a great question because someone, someone did once ask me, is the problem that the brain isn't getting enough glucose or is the glucose getting into the brain and the brain is just not able to use it? And it's so is the, is it like a supply problem or a demand problem? And at first they, it, they haven't established for certain what, what the process is, but it seems like at first it's a demand problem, meaning that the, the brain is not using glucose. Like the glucose is getting into the brain just fine. The brain is taking it up. It's just not being metabolized. It's not being burned. And so when the brain over time does not burn this glucose and it doesn't use it, then there's no need to keep sending glucose into the brain. So over time, then it becomes a supply problem. Like it's not even getting into the brain as much as it needs to. Um, and I think part of this is actually, it's kind of a protective mechanism and it's, it's kind of complicated. So I'll try to keep it simple, but there are certain processes that we see in Alzheimer's disease that seem pathological, they seem like they're contributing to the disease process. One of them is, is the buildup of something called beta amyloid, these amyloid plaques that you always hear about if you read about Alzheimer's disease. One of the things these amyloid proteins do is inhibit or reduce glucose metabolism in the brain. So, oh wow, no wonder, no wonder those amyloid proteins are a problem. If they're interfering with, with glucose use in the brain, and low glucose use in the brain is, is at the heart of this illness, then it makes sense that maybe these amyloid proteins are causing the problem. But the amyloid proteins kind of build up also late in the disease process. They don't happen right at the beginning. Um, I think that these amyloid proteins are actually doing the brain a favor because 
when you're younger and healthier and your brain is using a lot of glucose and there's tons and tons of glucose getting into the brain and your brain is burning it, glucose is kind of damaging. Um, I hate the word toxic because the brain does require some glucose and, and the, the body in general requires some glucose. We always need some. But when we have a ton of it, too much, all the time, it is very damaging. Um, it, it, the burning of glucose causes a lot of oxidative stress. It causes what we call glycation, which is where like everything just gets sticky and gunked up with sugar. So if we can think of it like the brain is actually starting to get somewhat damaged by the constant influx of glucose and the constant burning of glucose, then as a protective step, the brain is down-regulating or sort of reducing its own glucose usage. And so it makes perfect sense, like, oh my gosh, I'm so damaged from all this glucose, I'm going to take measures to protect myself against more damage from more glucose. And this would actually be totally fine. This would not be a problem at all if there were some alternative fuel available to the brain. But in people consuming a normal type Western or industrial diet, which is typically very high in carbohydrate, there's no alternative fuel available. And the end result is that these neurons, you know, wither and atrophy and die. So dementia and Alzheimer's is definitely a big topic that a lot of people are talking about because so many people have their parents or grandparents that are going through these phases where their brains just aren't working like they used to. And I'm even seeing it in my own parents where uh, they start to be uh, more forgetful about things or some of the things that they just say isn't you know, what you would expect them to say. And a lot of this has to do with the the standard diet that we have in our country where people are getting just inundated with uh, sugars. And it is having an impact on the way that our brains are functioning. So in this episode, we talk a lot about that and different things that you can do because the ketogenic diet isn't necessarily perfect for everybody. And there's good ways to do the ketogenic diet, and there's also a lot of bad ways to do the ketogenic diet. So, of course, anytime there's, um, quote, a dietary protocol that comes out, there will be people that try to cheat the system and make it as unhealthy as possible while trying to follow the same guidelines. And that's what we're seeing a lot with uh, the ketogenic diet right now. So, uh, it's definitely a, a an episode that's packed full of information. And so if you know of anybody in um, your immediate family or uh, friends or anything that's starting to suffer from dementia, it might be worth listening to. I've definitely handed out uh, her book to quite a few people this year just so that they can read up on it and learn a little bit more about it so that uh, they can help out the people that are important to their lives. So if you want to listen to that episode, it is episode 27 at summitforwellness.com slash 27. So that rounds up our top five episodes from 2018. And we're super excited about some of the episodes that will be coming up in 2019. Obviously, we haven't recorded all of them, so we don't know everything that's in store for the entire year. But I do know that we will be diving into... Um, some topics that we don't hear a whole lot about, but people have been asking me about. Like, for instance, a lot of people have been talking about um, or asking me to cover uh, what to do in their personal relationships for sexual health uh, with their partner and how to keep the spark alive, which I think is a fantastic topic because, um, you know, as we 
stay in the same relationship for a long time, things can kind of die off. And since I got married over the summer, I definitely want to make sure that uh, my wife and I do the best that we can to keep that spark alive uh, during our relationship. So uh, with that episode, she actually comes on as well to talk with myself and our guests um, so that we can talk about you know, different ways that couples can interact with each other just to keep that spark alive. Uh, We'll also be diving into a lot of sports psychology and um, diving into some of the health topics that are coming up and a lot more about the microbiome since that seems to be the super hot topic right now. And we really only know about 10% of what's going on with that microbiome. So we'll stay up to date with that. Uh, Some of the guests that I had on in 2018 have a lot of stuff that's in the works for 2019 about the microbiome. So we'll get them on the show again to talk about what's coming up in that realm. So we are super excited that uh, you have been listening to our show and uh, supplying us with information that you like to hear about, because we love to hear what issues all of you are facing in your day-to-day life um, that, you know, you want to try to do the best that you can to make your health as best as you possibly can while living in the world that we live in. So uh, keep talking to us, keep letting us know what it is that you want to hear, and we are super excited to see you um, in 2019. So keep climbing to the peak of your health, and we will see you in 2019.